Hello, I'm James Constable. And I'm Olivia Duncan, and you're listening to the Criminal Maze podcast. Today, James and I um, are talking with Her Honour Wendy Joseph, QC. Um, She has recently retired, uh, before which she practised as a barrister. She made silk and and then sat on the bench as a judge. In 2012, she became a judge at the Central Criminal Court, also known as the Old Bailey. At the time, she was the only uh, female judge sitting at the Old Bailey, and in its long history, she was in fact the third woman judge. Uh, When she left, uh, the members of the bench, the judges at the Old Bailey, were actually 50% women, 50% men. Um, She wrote a book which was published earlier this year, 2022, called Unlawful Killings. And so today, James and I talked to her about her long career and the wonderful book that she recently published. Enjoy. So you you are are now retired, I understand, um, but you were a judge for very many years, 10 years at the Old Bailey, um, which is the central criminal court in England and Wales. And you, you note in your, in your book that only a small proportion of judges are licensed to try murder cases. And I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what, you, what made you want to preside over murder trials and um, what's the process of becoming a, a licensed murder judge? So I was at the bar for 32 years. And during the latter part of that time, I was sitting as a what is called a recorder that is a part-time judge, and it's very much part-time. It's something like three or four weeks a year, perhaps five or six weeks a year, but no more than that. And I knew I liked being a judge. When I first became a judge, I went to Snaresbrook Crown Court, which is a hugely busy Crown Court on the east side of London with a vast input a throughput of um, criminal cases, uh, not that many murders or manslaughters, because mostly they were being tried at the Old Bailey. In every one of the courts around the country, there is, no, not true, not everyone, but in many of the courts around the country, there is one judge who is licensed to try a murder case, And that is usually the most senior judge in the building. So I had exposure to that when I was at Snaresbrook, but I never tried one myself. Uh, I was then given a ticket, as it is called, to try uh, attempted murders and manslaughters. And that really comes first, if you ask for it, And secondly, if someone on high thinks you are experienced enough not to make a muck of it, if they give you a case of that nature to try. I was at Snaresbrook for four years when some vacancies became available at the Old Bailey and they have a a competition for these sorts of positions. Um, you do have to have a certain background before you can apply. I mean, you know, you you, you can't be um, a doctor in the north of England suddenly thinking, actually, I quite fancy being a judge at the Old Bailey. You have to have a legal background. You have to have been either a solicitor or a barrister, um, very occasionally an academic, but, but someone with a lot of experience in the criminal law. And then there is a, an open competition between all of those 
who want to apply for it. And going to the Old Bailey, a decision to apply to go there really means you are effectively saying, I want to try uh, the most serious crimes in this country. Mm. And that in effect means that you want to be trying murders. So that when I went to the Old Bailey, I was committing myself to doing a pretty much a daily diet of death. In, in almost every case I tried there, there was either a dead or a nearly dead body. Um, murder, manslaughter, different sorts of manslaughter. Uh, of course, um, lesser offences, but just as serious to those who've lost their lives and their families and their friends. Things like death by dangerous driving, even death by careless driving. But those um, mainly murder and those that range of cases was what I was trying then for the last 10 years of my judicial career at the Bailey. Can you remember the feeling the first day you went into the old Bailey and sat as a judge? I do. Um, I was uh, very nervous because at the old Bailey, because the cases are so serious, um, you get the most experienced and senior barristers often appearing there. So um, I had in front of me um, people who were, I had been a QC for nearly 10 years by then. And I had in front of me at the Old Bailey now, on the other side, as it were, in front of me, facing me in the courtroom, the people I'd been either prosecuting or defending against or with um, over the past years, uh, people who were uh, I respected enormously, as well as many um, younger people as well. But but I was suddenly um, facing this 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 position, and there was something else. Um, I went there in 2012 when they had 16 full-time judges. When I got there, there were 15 men and me. Over all the years, I was only the third ever full-time woman judge at the Old Bailey. And the first, Nina Lowry, had been there, I think, in the 80s and perhaps um, yes, I think in the 80s. The second, Anne Goddard, had been there in the late 90s into the early 20s. But they hadn't had a woman judge there for uh, five, six years when I went there in 2012. And they certainly weren't used to it. So um, when you go into court for the first time, there's a tradition that the most senior barrister will stand up and greet you. And he did. And he was terribly nice and awfully polite about it. Uh, and he said how much he um, looked forward to welcoming um, my lordship at the <laughs> Bailey. And so I thought, well, do you know, it's a slip of the tongue. These things happen. Um, and I, it sounds so pompous to say, actually, it's my lady, not my lord. Uh, so I didn't say anything. And he did it again. And I thought, I don't think he's being rude. He wasn't being rude. Um, it was just hardwired into his brain because that's how he'd been addressing the bench for years and years and years. And when he did it a third time, I thought, you know, I really have to do something about this. So I just looked 
straight down my cleavage and <laughs> looked back up at him. And there was this realization crossing his face, followed by a, a scarlet flush crossing his case at face, and he never did it again. And neither did anybody else do it again at the Old Bailey. That's amazing. <laughs> and were, were there more female judges when you retired? So when I went, one out of the whole lot. When I left, 50%. So a real, real advance on that field, at least. Um, we didn't do that brilliantly in diversity as a whole, but on, uh, on that aspect of diversity, we did extremely well. We achieved parity, I think, in fact, in 2021. And you've written about that in your position as a diversity and community relations judge. Um, it's your role, amongst other things, to, to, to bridge a gap between the community and the judiciary. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what um, a DCRJ does. Is there, is there a manual for it? Um, and then secondly, why is it important, in your opinion, to, to, to bridge that chasm between community and, and the bench? Okay, well, let me just explain um, what it actually is, as well as the day job, which involves going into court all day, and then all the work that that involves out of court, drafting rulings, preparing summing ups, and so on and so forth. Um, there is a special appointment called a diversity and community relations judge. And these days, there should be one such judge appointed for every Crown Court in the country. And for the big Crown Court, sometimes there's two. And the idea is that um, you reach out into the community so that those who want to understand the system better or those who have problems with the system and think it's being unfair to them and want to talk to a judge and say, how can it be like this? Have a, a point of access to it. So I would spend lots of time over the years um, visiting schools, but much more often having schools visiting me, coming in to the building uh, after court hours, or having slightly older children come in when we were sitting on cases so they could look around. I would have lots of students in, either marshalling with me or students that I could talk to after the court day if they were interested in becoming barristers, becoming judges ultimately about how it worked. But many other sorts of people too. So there were times when we had um, groups of imams come in to discuss the problems they felt that their particular community was having with the judicial system. I couldn't speak as to what happened with the police, but I could as to what happened in the courtrooms. Um, those who had an interest in mental illness, um, groups of them would come in and I would learn so much, for example, from the parents of youngsters uh, who were autistic, who had various sorts of mental disorders, um, so that they had a point of contact and could speak to someone and explain how they felt about it. Uh, those whose children had died to knife crime and wanted to fight against knife crime and wanted to talk to someone who sat day after day seeing 
how knife, knife crime happened. So a lot of work of, of that nature. And what I was doing uh, was trying to reach out to all of those groups and make myself available to anyone who had the patience to come and talk to me about the sort of problems they had. And the re reason I wrote the book really was because in lockdown, where the Bailey was only running two, three, four cases instead of 15 or 16 cases, um, quite a few of us were sent away over that first summer. And not only was I not sitting in a court conducting trials, but I couldn't do any of the diversity work. And so I thought, well, maybe I can write about it. Maybe I can actually describe having a group of school children into the building and what happens when they come in. Um, which is how the book begins. And, and that's, so that's really how the whole thing began in the beginning. And you've touched on mental illness and something we found in the last series of the podcast is that many people within the criminal justice system feel that the court and prison isn't the right place for lots of people that come into contact with it. You, your book mentions two cases, um, Joshua and Ruth. And from reading those, I felt that the court may not be the right place for, for them to appear. Um, is, that, is that something that you agree with? Um, it's certainly true that uh, the courts have real problems dealing with those who've got mental, mental illness. But James, I think what you've really got to think about is what you want the court to do. Um, I, I think the court is a service industry, but it's not there to serve the individual defendant and it's not there to serve the individual victim. It's there to serve the community. It's there to serve society. And I suppose it really depends what you think the court can or should achieve. And this is a huge subject and we've never really drilled down to the bottom of it. And unless we do, and actually I think it's what part of what my next book is going to be about, unless we do drill down and work out what we want from our court system, we haven't got a hope of achieving it. And there are a variety of things we could seek to achieve. One um, is to punish, um, to get revenge for wrongs that have been done. And that historically has been the thrust of the courts, if you go back over the centuries. Um, and so um, if someone takes a life, you took their life. And now we don't have uh, hanging anymore. Um, you take away their life in the community, you lock them up for a certain very long period of time these days. Another thing that um, the courts might be trying to do is to protect society from people who cannot be stopped from committing crimes um, or who, for, from people who show no inclination to be stopped from committing crimes. So, so the 
thought goes, lock them up and they can't be committing crimes. So those have been two things that the courts have sought to do over the years, I have to say, with very, very little success. Um, the third thing you can try and do is actually to stop the crimes happening in the beginning. The, uh, and that would require a degree of input at a stage long before the crime is committed. And what I always say, and don't think anyone believes me, but I think it's true, is that once someone has arrived at the court door, we, the community, society has failed. We've already failed because they're there, whether they're guilty or not, we're there because a crime has been committed somewhere by someone. And we didn't stop that happening. So there's the whole education thing that needs to be looked at. And then there's another thing, which is to come full circle to the question you asked, forgive me for it being a big circle, which is, um, do you concentrate on helping the defendant? You, so those with mental illness are a, a very good example of people that really one might help. And it's a, it, it, it is a good example because it's one of the very few areas where huge efforts have been made to help. I'm not saying with any great success, but the reality is, um, although the courtroom isn't the place to help them, in terms of disposals, it is perfectly possible and happens all the time that someone whose crime has been caused by the mental illness or largely caused by the mental illness isn't sent to prison, but is sent into a psychiatric hospital for treatment and they become not a prisoner, but they become a patient and their release um, is governed not by what the judge says, but why, by what the doctors say um, for the more serious crimes um, overseen as it were by um, views from what used to be called the Home Office for, the, for these purposes, um, the Home Secretary at least, and then overseen finally by a panel which would consist of a, a tribunal headed by a judge or a recorder with a, a doctor on it, a psychiatrist on it, and a, a social worker or someone of that sort with vast experience in the community on it. So um, there is some help uh, available, but the fact is you really just need to stop and think what we want the courts to do um, before you can answer the question, is it the right place for those um, of, with the sort of illnesses that, that you've been talking about? And sorry as you may feel for someone who's brought before the court with uh, some appalling mental illness, um, you have to also bear in mind the grief of someone whose child's been killed or whose parents been killed by the person with mental illness. You also have to take on board that 
Whereas it is often the case that someone with mental illness has committed the crime because of the mental illness, that isn't always the case. Uh, th there are many cases where someone commits the crime and has a mental illness, but the two are not causally connected. So it's a very complex problem, but it does need a deal of thought um, and more work done on it to try and produce the best results for society as a whole. And as we're, I guess, talking a bit about, or kind of um, referring, I guess, implicitly to the fact that we have this adversarial system in, in England and Wales, um, rather than an inquisitorial one. And um, I was actually, uh, I was watching a video of you where you were commenting on um, fictional representations of um, of English courtroom, well, uh, uh, other courtrooms, and um, uh, you you were commenting on um, on the film Liar Liar with um, with Jim Carrey, and you made this point, and I had to kind of pause the video to suggest what you were saying, and I think it did. It, it does kind of tie into the fact that this is a combative system, an adversarial system. And you said, um, like in the middle of all of his Jim Carreyness and and the fact that it's an American courtroom, obviously being depicted, um, you said um, that this was a kind of courtroom truth that was being shown in this moment, and that is that advocates will all experience a moment where they have said something very clever and which they suddenly realise has brought about profound unhappiness for people who do not deserve to be made unhappy. Um, and I thought, well, I would just like you to hear, to hear you talk a bit about what you meant when you said that. OK, well, should I just put the little clip in context? It's Jim Carrey um, in America, I have to say, uh, representing a woman who is seeking um, a, a very large sum of money uh, in a divorce settlement. Um, uh, and she and her husband have two children, and he's been a very good father to the children, and she has probably been a less than ideal mother to them. But she not only wants a settlement and is triumphantly awarded millions and millions and millions um, from um, the judge, she also wants, suddenly, out of the blue, says she wants custody of the two children because it will give her an extra $10,000 a year. And it's Jim, the moment when Jim Carey realizes that his brilliance, if that is the right word, uh, as, a, as an advocate, which has won the case for her, is likely to result in the children being taken away from the father and given to her just so that she can get an extra £10,000 a year, $10,000 a year, whereas the children clearly adore their father and he wants them. And it's that moment when you suddenly realise it isn't a game, it isn't a war. These are real people whose lives you are dealing with. Um, I'll tell you a little story. You can cut it out of this later on when you're editing it. When I first went to the bar, my mum came to see me in court and I was prosecuting a young guy of colour. 
and I cross-examined him and did it rather well and rather aggressively as one does when one is quite young and inexperienced. And at lunchtime, I said to my mum, let's go and get something to eat. And she said, having watched it all from the public gallery, she said, I'm not hungry. And I knew something was wrong because my mum was always hungry. And so I said, what's the matter? And she said to me, I have been sitting in the public gallery with a lovely woman and I was listening to you making all of these points. And I said to her, that's my daughter down there. And she said to me, pointing to the defendant, that's my son. And my mother said, you called him a liar. She was so upset. You were so rude to him. She said, I didn't bring you up to talk to strangers like that. And she said to me, better you should be a florist than do that. And I thought, actually, she's got a point. And it's a lesson I've tried to tell to young barristers ever since, that you are given this huge power, that you are allowed to say things to, to a total stranger in a courtroom, that if you said it to them in the street, and got punched in the face, you would have deserved it. Um, it, it. And it's a power that you have to use responsibly. And it's not only a power, it's a duty to do the job, but how you do the job is really important. And um, I, I think that all barristers with that power and the duty to, to their client, whether they're prosecuting or defending, really need to bear in mind um, the limits of the job, that it isn't about being clever. Um, it, it isn't from their point of view about achieving justice. That's not what they're interested in. It's what the bench is interested in. Their job is to put forward their case as well as they properly can. But within responsible limits, I think. And do you, do you ever get a sinking feeling when you walk into court and see some of the barristers that are representing? Um, <laughs> so, um, James, some are, some are more difficult than others. That is certainly true. Um, but, you know, by, by and large, um, certainly at the Bailey, um, they, were, they tended to be extremely good. Uh, and some were harder work than others, um, it's true. Uh, but they were all very nice. Because you do mention in the book about a barrister cross-examining a young girl and you having to pull him up a few times because yeah. he's pushing too hard. Oh, you very often have to stop barristers. Um, they know where the limits are, but they don't always stop. Sometimes they'll just go a little step further than they should and wait for the judge to stop them. Um, most of them don't. Most of them don't do that. But occasionally you get someone who does. And it is the, it, it is the judge's job to draw the line. And from the bar, it isn't always clear where the line actually is because, you know, you're deep in your case, um, you see it from one side rather than from a balanced position. So it is for the judge to make sure that the rules of evidence are adhered to. And in, in your book, it's made up of six cases. 
how did you pick those six cases as you were sitting as a judge for so many years? So, um, as I think I've, I've made clear at the beginning of the book, the cases as I've described them with defendants with those names on those days with those particular set of facts didn't really happen. What I've done is I took six different areas that I thought were actually important to people. Um, so I took domestic violence, knife crime, gang crime, six different areas I thought really mattered, mental illness. And then I thought about lots of cases that I'd done on those different subjects. And then I drew together lots of experiences to create a story that in each case that was representative of the things that happen in such cases. So every single thing that happens in the book has happened in front of me in one case or another, but not in the particular combinations that I have um, drawn in the six cases. I, I suppose that what I could say is the cases aren't real, but everything in them is true. And the case where you touch on domestic violence, there's a line that I picked up from the book. Um, you said criminal law is at its weakest when it is dealing with domestic violence. Could you explain what you meant by that? So the problem with domestic violence is that it's domestic. The problem is that it happens behind closed doors. So you are not likely to have witnesses, except maybe on the other side of a wall saying, I heard screams or I heard bangs or, or whatever. But you're not going to get the eyewitnesses that you're going to get if there's an attack in a shopping centre, for example. Um, you're not going to get CCTV, as you might have if something happened in a shopping centre or in the middle of a town or something. So you've got um, the evidence that you've got is going to be limited, the eyewitness evidence is going to be limited to those who were there. And if one of them is dead and the other one's in the dock, your eyewitness evidence is really quite limited. You may get ear witness evidence, as I say, from next door, and you may well get um, background evidence from the way people have behaved in the past and complaints that have been made in the past. And you'll probably get um, medical evidence. You'll get a, a post-mortem uh, and you may get blood splatter that will tell you where around the house a pursuit took place or whatever it is. So um, there'll be many different sorts of evidence, but what you're not gonna get is someone to say, this is actually what happened. I saw it happen. And even if the um, alleged victim is um, alive and able to give evidence, you've still got one person's word against another person's word. Mm -hmm. So anything that happens behind closed doors is really problematic. And that I'm afraid is not only why it is so difficult dealing with domestic violence, um, domestic physical violence, it's why rape cases are so problematic because um, you so often don't get 
another another eyewitness saying, well, I saw what happened because you don't, you don't invade cases. Uh, and as soon as you get into that situation, as soon as the jury's got to wear one person's word against another, the um, rate of conviction plummets. And it plummets not because they necessarily believe the defense case more than they believe the prosecution case. That isn't why it plummets. It plummets because of the test they have to apply. It doesn't matter who they think is most likely to be right. What matters is if they are sure the prosecution is right. Because if they're not sure the prosecution is right, they have to acquit. Even if they think, you know, when I was defending, I used to say to I used to say to jurors, if you think my client is not guilty, of course you will acquit. But if you think he is um, probably not guilty, or even just possibly not guilty, the law says you have to acquit. And so when you put together problems of crimes where there tends to be only one person's word against another, and the standard of proof, burden and standard of proof, you end up with um, um, fewer convictions. I'm not criticizing our system at all. Please don't think I'm saying we shouldn't have that system. Um, what I'm saying is, although the system works well in many areas, you have to bear in mind it does have its weaknesses, and that's one of them. That was the first half of our conversation with Wendy Joseph. The concluding half will be out next week and it'll be available from all podcast providers.